Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Anchor. My name is Brad. I'm on the staff team here. Uh, if you are new or visiting, let me add my welcome to Matt's and to our interns. We're really excited to have you guys on board. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, this morning, we're really glad to have you as we're continuing and finishing off our journey through the story of God. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should do. But the Bible, as we've been seeing, is one story about God and what God has done. No matter what page you turn to, it's all about Jesus and God's plan to save the world through him. So the the goal of this series is to help you understand the four grand movements of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and to understand how God's story shapes your story. So we saw movement one, creation. Where did we come from? We saw that God made everything good. He made everything for him. He made us in his image, which means we have value and dignity. And he's given us a purpose in this world to steward the creation for his glory. In the second movement, the fall, we we asked what went wrong. We saw humanity reject God's plans. Instead Instead of giving God the glory that he deserves as our maker, we worship the things that he's made. We get rid of God and our sin brings death into God's good world. It breaks the very fabric of creation and it alienates us from our maker. The third movement that we saw last week is redemption. And we asked, what will fix the world? We see that God doesn't abandon his messed up world, but he loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world to die on the cross for you and for me, to take the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God. And this week we turn to the final movement of God's story, restoration. The first three movements look backwards, and this final movement looks forwards to the future. And we're going to ask, what is God's hoped for, what is our hoped for future? But before we begin, let me pray. Let us pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you might fill us with hope by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be a community that abounds in hope. Father, we ask that you would set our minds on what is to come that we would long for your future and that it would shape radically how we live. Father, we need your help. We invite your Holy Spirit now to work powerfully in our hearts and in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I needed to get our car registered, so I took it into the mechanic to get the pink slip, and it was really busy. Enzo, the mechanic, was running around flustered. He had multiple clients coming in at the same time, a few different deliveries, and I had to wait 10, 15 minutes to be served. And when he eventually got to me, he started venting to me. He was frustrated at himself. He was frustrated that he was being so rude to all his customers and the delivery guys. He felt under so much pressure, but he was frustrated that no one was was appreciating him, uh, that no one was respecting him. And then he started getting frustrated about his life and, and sharing with me about his life. He's about 50, he said, and he felt like he's having a midlife crisis. He wants to raise good kids, but he knows that the world's a bad place. He knows that they need to be street smart, but he wants them to be good. And he said to me, sometimes I just think it'd be better to leave the city and move to the country, just get out of here, have a simpler life. I want to escape my life. I know when I'm struggling to cope as a dad, my default reaction is often the same as Enzo's. I want to escape along for a change of circumstance. You know, I think I'll be happy when my kids start sleeping through the night or when they sleep in until after six or I'll be happy when it's easy to put them down at bedtime. I'll be happy when I can have some personal time for myself away from my kids. So often we think life is hard and I just want things to be better than they are right now. 
So what would it take for you to be happy? What's the better life that you imagine for yourself? Maybe you think, I'll be happy when I find a partner. I'll be happy when I get that raise or when they change the date of Australia Day. I'll be happy when I've saved up, and saved up enough money for a home deposit or when my team wins or I, when I find the right house or when I've locked in a preschool for my kids. Hope for the future fuels so much of what we do. And so we get busy trying to create the better future that we imagine. And yet despite all our best efforts, we're never content, are we? There's an itch within our souls. Good is never good enough. Better is never best. We always want more. Our hopes for a better future, even when they're realised, leave us ultimately unsatisfied. During the Enlightenment in the 18th century, there was this ideal of progress, that history is moving in a linear direction forwards, that progress is inevitable, and that people thought that advances in science and technology will inevitably produce improvement in the human condition. And this hangover from the Enlightenment is still with us. We still have this hope of progress, that we can make the world a better place. We saw this in Obama's presidential campaign in 2008. Does anyone remember what the banner that he campaigned under was? Hope. (laughs) Obama, hope. You know, we think that better infrastructure, better education, better resources for our healthcare system, better equality for the poor and marginalised, lower house prices, less taxes, more funding for international aid... We think that all of these things can make the world a better place, that we can achieve progress. And so this ideal of progress from the Enlightenment carried us forward in the 18th and 19th centuries as we saw the Industrial Revolution and secularisation and lots of improvement in Western society. And then we hit the 20th century where there were more wars, more corruption, more death than ever before. And it was a slap in the face for this ideal of progress, and we learned that progress is a myth. History moves in circles, and that the writer of Ecclesiastes was right when he said, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And so for many of us, the future might seem bleak and hopeless. You might be struggling with depression, sickness, sadness, childlessness, loneliness, heartbreak, betrayal, bullying. And that's not to mention casting our eyes outwards to see the mess in our society and in our world. You might think, life didn't turn out how I thought it would. I'm I'm not going to be happy. All I can do is survive and just make it to the end of the day. Many of us have abandoned hope. And so what is the hoped-for future in God's story? And how does God's story impact how we live out our own stories in the world? We're going to take a look at the closing picture of the future in Revelation 21 and 22. So I invite you to get your phones out, your Bible out, open to the last few pages of the Bible. The verses will be on the screen. Uh, We're going to read Revelation 21, 1 to 8, and then we're going to skip forwards to verse 22 and keep reading. So Revelation 21 from verse 1. Let's read together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I want us to see five things from this picture of the future. The first thing is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the creation was very good, but then it was cursed by the fall. Human actions have ecological consequences, and sin has left deep scars on our planet. We've exploited the environment for short-sighted gains to satisfy our own rapacious desire for consumption. We've seen a loss of biodiversity, extinction of species, climate change, pollution, desertification, water shortage, not to mention all the environmental natural disasters. It's true what Paul writes in Romans 8, that creation is groaning, longing for its redemption from its bondage to decay. And here at the end, we see it released from that bondage to decay. We see a new creative work of God, a new heaven and a new earth in verse 1. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Now, does that mean that God destroys our planet and starts again? No, this is a renovation project, not a demolition. We will inhabit a renewed and restored earth, a perfect planet, not perfected by our environmental efforts or our political efforts, but by the one who made it and redeemed it. God himself, our creator, will bring to completion his plans for it, our earth. So Christian hope isn't go to heaven when you die, rather it's heaven comes to earth. Our future is physical, 
earthy, but perfect. The second thing that we see in verse 2 is a new Jerusalem. The movement of the Bible is from a garden in Genesis to a city at the end in Revelation. Verse 2, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride for her husband. In Revelation 19, God's new future with his people is described as a wedding banquet, a feast. And here, the bride is the city of God and the husband is Jesus. God's renewed people living together with him in perfect harmony. Now, you see the best and the worst of humanity in cities, don't you? You know, we see cultural development, creativity in the arts, good coffee and food. But there can also be crime, pollution, corruption. But in this city, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who is detestable or false. You see, the ultimate gentrification is done by God. He takes our stains and washes us clean. On that last day, we will be a holy city, the new Jerusalem, without blemish, beautifully adorned for God. The third thing that we see is that God dwells with man. He makes his home with us. The story of God follows God's actions to rescue his lost people and bring us home. We see that God dwelt with his people in the garden and then humanity was sent out separated from God because of sin. And since that moment, God has been pursuing us. He is determined to dwell with us, to make his home with us. He dwelt with his people Israel through the tabernacle and the temple. He sent his son Jesus in the flesh to dwell amongst us. He's given us, church, his Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. God is in us. God is with us. And on that last day, this story will be complete in verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. He will make his home with us. Does that blow your mind? Our creator, our maker, the eternal God wants to be with you, wants to be in the same house as you. I don't know if your wife can say that about you or your kids can say that about you, but God wants to make his home with you. We've just returned from a two-week holiday in Vietnam and we had a great time. We love Vietnam. We love the culture. We love the people. We love the food. But by the end of the trip, we were tired. We wanted to come home. There's a sense, in, even when you arrive at Sydney Airport, has anyone experienced this? And you hear the Australian accents, yeah? You're like, oh, it's good to be back. Let alone when you walk in your door and you can sleep on your own pillow and on your own bed and our kids can play with their own toys and be in their own space. It's not until you get home that you can, that you can rest. Augustine, the great church father, wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. On that day, we will be home. We will come home and we will enter our rest. Our bodies will rest. Our souls will rest. We will be at home with God. The fourth thing that we see is that God will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. In January, Nathan Barry, a 16-year-old boy at Janali Anglican Church, he died after a long battle with cancer. And some of you will know Nathan and his family in that situation. A tragedy. His grandfather wrote this. Death is the horrible reality of our life that screams, there's something wrong with our world. Do you feel that? Whenever we cease to rage against death, 
we've given up on life. God created us to live forever. But our sin brings death into the world. The fall creates a disequilibrium in the creation. We experience suffering and sickness and death, and this is not how it was meant to be. Death is not natural. It's the greatest enemy of God, and it must be defeated. That is the story of the Bible. It tells the cosmic battle between life and death, good and evil. And in this final act of the story, Jesus, our great hero, fights the last battle against death and all his friends. In chapter 20, we see that Jesus defeats Satan, he judges the world, and he casts all his minions, all his enemies, into hell, that lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Now, we cringe at the idea of hell, don't we? But deep down, we all crave for justice. We want the world to be set right. Judgment is an essential part of the restoration project. It's an essential part of the renewal process. See, fire purifies gold, but it also burns away all the impurities. I've got a metal table out in our back courtyard, and it's rusty, and I'm not a DIY guy, but I kind of want to restore it, but I don't know if I ever will. But I know that if I do restore it, I can't just put a new liquid of paint on it because it's all rusty, and it'll just continue to corrode and decay. The first thing I've got to do is I've got to sand off all the rust, don't I? I've got to get rid of all the rust and all the decay before I paint it. See, the only way that this messed up world can be restored is if God gets rid of the rust. If God first defeats evil and sin and death, and that's what he'll do. He will fight a last battle and when he's finished, all wars will cease and death will be swallowed up in victory. Now, if you're an atheist, the atheistic worldview says that death is normal. It's natural. Our heart stops beating. Our lungs stop breathing. Our brain stops. It ceases to function. And we're dead. And they'll put our body in the dirt or burn it, and we will cease to exist. And that is the end. Our body will decay. But the problem is that no funeral service ever feels natural, does it? There's something in us that rages against death. It's not right. It's not fair. Death is a scar from the fall. But the Bible has a different story. God's story is different. It does not end in death. We saw that Jesus died, and then what happened? He was raised to life. And as Christians, we share in that story. We too will die once, but then we will be raised with him to eternal life. And we will share in his glorious resurrected body. Our bodies will put on immortality. But they will be imperishable. They will be glorious. Just before Christmas, we noticed that our little daughter, Eva, she's three years old, she's just about to start preschool next week, we noticed that one of her eyes started turning in. And we were concerned and we went to the doctor and he sent us to an optometrist and it turns out that Eva is quite severely long-sighted and within a few days she had glasses. And there's something within you that grieves as a parent that my little girl's body isn't right. There's something wrong with her body. It's not perfect. And I don't know what is wrong with your body. I don't know what your pain is 
what your sickness is. All of our bodies will decay. But on that last day, Eva can leave her glasses at the door. On that last day, you can leave your wheelchair at the door. You can leave your crutches, your prosthetics at the door because the blind will see, the lame will walk, and the dead will live. On that last day, equilibrium will be restored. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain, no more heartache, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more corruption, no more betrayal, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. All the sad things will come untrue. Is that good news? Do you long for that? That is God's offer to you. He offers you eternal life. And how do you receive it? In verse 6, he says, to the thirsty. Are you thirsty? I'm thirsty. We are thirsty. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. He offers this to you free, without charge, as a gift, with no payment. Don't turn away from it. But until that day, our bodies and our hearts, they groan, don't they? They long for Jesus to come back and make all things new. The last thing that we see is Jesus on the throne. A day when every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Right at the centre of the picture of this future is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world that God raised up and exalted as King of Kings and we see that he will reign forever and ever. You see, our hope is not in what we can get from God. Our hope is God. Our hope is in God himself. Jesus is the centre, he's at the centre of this vision for the future. From his throne flows the river of eternal life. There will be no sun, there'll be no night because the glory of God gives us light and the lamb is its lamp. Jesus is at the centre of this vision for the future and it's an amazing picture, isn't it? Even if we can't fully comprehend it now, even if it's wrapped in obscurity now, it will be revealed on that last day. And we can have confidence in this future church. Do you have confidence in this future? Do you know the reason why? It's because of God's action in the past. When God rose Jesus from the dead, he began the work of restoration, the cosmic work of renewal and restoration. And he's continuing it now in the church, in us, through his Holy Spirit. He's making us fit for eternity. And he'll bring it to completion when Jesus returns. This isn't wishful thinking, church. This is seeing things the way they are from God's perspective. But how does this vision of the future, how does God's story, how does it shape how we live out our own stories? You know, life is pretty good here in Sydney. We're comfortable. We've got everything at our fingertips, cafes, restaurants, beaches, sport. Sydney is an amazing place to live. But we can fool ourselves into thinking that heaven has already arrived on earth. We can hold God's promised future at a distance and forget that there's something messed up with our world. There's something terribly wrong that still needs to be fixed and restored. I had a friend that used to live on the northern beaches and you know, used to brag to me about living on the beach and just how amazing that was. But as he, he, he told me that he used to drive down from the plateau and every, every time he came down in his car looking out over the expanse of ocean and the stretch of beaches, he would audibly say to himself in the car, this is not 
my home. It's easy to think that this is our home, but we are waiting a home and a kingdom to come. We need to place ourselves in the story of God and cultivate an expectant longing for the future. D.L. Moody said that we live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose today, and is coming back tomorrow. We need to place ourselves in the story because living in this story drives us to a countercultural way of life that gives people a foretaste of eternity. Living in this story drives us to sacrificial generosity, to self-denying obedience, to joyfully serve others, to actively seek justice in our communities, to eagerly share this hope with others, and even a willingness to suffer for the gospel, because we know that our treasure is in heaven. It's secured by God. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. Our treasure is in heaven. It's not on earth. John Patton was a missionary to the Pacific Island in the 19th century, and one man wrote to him, dissuading him to go, saying, the cannibals! You'll be eaten by cannibals! And John Patton wrote back to him, Mr. Tixon, you, you are advancing in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. <laughs> and in the great day, my, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. David Platt wrote this, when we consider the promises of Christ, risking everything we are and everything we have for his sake is no longer a matter of sacrifice, it's just common sense. Following Christ is not sacrificial as much as it is smart. When God offers you an eternal reward that far surpasses anything in this world. Jim Elliot understood this when he wrote, Jim Elliot is a famous mission missionary martyr who died in Ecuador in the 20th century trying to uh, share the gospel with an unreached tribe of Indians in Ecuador. Jim Elliot wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, living in this story leads you to a, a radical life for God. But you can only live this way if you have your eyes firmly fixed on God's future. Now, church, I think that I think we're pretty good at shaping our lives around the third movement of our story, around the redemptive movement of God's story. You know, we think no matter what I've done, no matter how bad I've messed up, God loves me. He forgives me. He's adopted me as his child. We have a saviour. And that's good news, isn't it? No matter what you have done, God offers you forgiveness and reconciliation because of Jesus' death on the cross. But I think that we need to do a lot better at shaping our lives around the restoration movement of the story. Psalm 33 says this, the war horse is a false hope for salvation. Do you have any false hopes? The people of Israel were putting their hope in the things of the world, strong, powerful weapons of warfare rather than in their God. We can put our hope in the wrong place. So, what is your hoped-for future? What is your version of heaven? What are you living for in the present? And does that align with God's story? Blaise Pascal, a 17th century mathematician and philosopher, wrote this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. 
The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. Happiness is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. We all want happiness. That's the baseline. That's basic to human nature. It's what, it's what we are hoping to find our happiness in that matters. For a lot of us, our hope produces to, you know, I just want to enjoy my life. YOLO. It's nothing beyond it. Got to be happy now, so I'm just going to do it. But happiness in this life is too small a goal. C.S. Lewis writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. What's our problem? We are far too easily pleased. The Australian version of the good life is too small a vision. God has put eternity in our hearts and we have shrunk our imaginations to the size of a nice home, to a good holiday by the beach, to a comfortable retirement. Don't settle for temporary happiness. Don't settle for less when God offers you eternal joy. Surrounded by the lure of temporary pleasure, we must find our joy in the one who promises us a home in the new heaven and the new earth. You know, Enzo, my mechanic, he thought he'd be happy if he could escape his circumstances. But Christian hope is not about escape. Christian hope is not about progress. Christian hope is about Jesus returning to bring justice and restoration and make all things new. So God's story, it allows us to be, remain deeply embedded in our circumstances, to even experience joy in the midst of our suffering and sickness, because we're not waiting for new circumstances. We're waiting for a brand new world and a life of infinite joy with God. And so, church, we need to recalibrate our stories, don't we? We need to repent of our false hopes, of our rival stories, we need to renew our trust in the Lord and in His new future and ask the Holy Spirit to make us a community that abounds in hope. Throughout January, we've seen these four movements, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And those same four movements, they're the same for your story, for my story, for every story. And we hope that as, we, as you've understood God's story, that will help you understand your own life and align your life with God's story. But we also hope that this will give you a framework to be able to tell your story with Jesus as the hero because telling your story is one of the most effective ways to share Jesus with people. But we also hope that understanding these four movements will help you listen, will help you listen for our culture's stories, help you listen for other people's stories and equip you to speak the sure and certain hope of the gospel into their lives as a counter story. And so to wrap up our series and tie it all together, we've invited Robin Volpe to come and share his gospel story. Good morning. 
he goes. Um, creation. I was born in 1982. My dad, Hector Rolando Volpi, uh, migrant from Chile. My mum, Janet Ann Wilson, uh, fourth or fifth generation Australian. Um, my real name is Christopher Robin Volpi. No, I'm not named after Winnie the Pooh. Um, I was named after a dream my mum had before she fell pregnant with me. It means bearer of Christ, bright shining light. Now, despite what you might think from the name, um, my mum wasn't a Christian, at least not yet. Uh, both my mum and dad had been raised as nominal Roman Catholics and then in their adulthood um, got into New Age spirituality. So at least early on at home, um, the Christian concept of God was not really something that's present for. Um, not long after my mum, after I was born, uh, my mum suffered from severe depression. This led to her pulling away from my dad, and that's when it started. Um, dad started beating mum. Um, I was pretty young at the time, but it's something I still remember and would affect me for years to come. Now, that eventually led to mum running away from dad with my brother and I. Um, we went to a women's refuge at first, and then we ended up in housing commission out in Prospect. Um, that was, um, well, I suppose, from, from then on, um, the extent of my relationship with my dad pretty much consisted of um, two phone calls a year, um, one on my birthday and one on Christmas, and it was effectively um, the end of my relationship with my older half-brother, Mauricio. Um, and, like, during that period, um, we didn't have any contact with Dad, didn't have any contact with Mum's family. Mum didn't trust her family not to tell Dad where we were living. Um, so, to say the least, she was scared. And around that time, um, her mental and physical health just really began to deteriorate. And that, that's a battle I'd be witness to right throughout my childhood, um, right up to the present day. And um, like just losing those significant relationships so early on in life and in that context, it um, just left me with the conclusion that my dad had rejected me because there was something wrong with me. And um, that left me angry and hurting. And the person who would feel the brunt of that anger most would be my mum. Um, from pretty early on, I pushed my mum away, at least emotionally, and on some level, I, I resented her. Um, I resented her for her weakness and for her inability to give me the sense of security um, I, I really longed for. Um, but, like, despite um, being in housing commission it, and it being rough early on, um, we, we were really fortunate. My grandparents stepped in after we resumed contact with my mum's family and they decided to buy a house for us to get us out of housing commission. And that's, that, that began our time in Marrickville. This is where I grew up. Um, now, it was a lot safer than being in housing commission, but back in the 80s, Marrickville was still a little bit rough, especially for a skip in a sea of migrants. Um, it, it, it seemed like everyone else had someone watching their back Everyone else had somewhere to belong. Um, everyone else had some heritage to be proud of, I except us. And to make it even worse, I was only half Aussie. Um, sometimes I'd make efforts to be you know, publicly half Chilean, but the reality was I knew next to nothing about Chilean culture. I didn't speak Spanish, and there wasn't exactly any other Chileans to um, have my back. So, yeah, that didn't go down too well. But... Um, 
around the time I was six, um, my mum's spiritual search for the God who was love led her to faith in Jesus. Um, now, despite coming to faith in Jesus, she was still a really broken person. And re- really broken people are often the easiest people to hurt. And got hurt, she did. Um, over the next six years or so, we're involved in at least half a dozen different churches. And none of them would stick. And the whole experience um, really just served to reinforce my sense of not belonging. And it really began um, just a, a sense of cynicism when it came to Christians. But despite the dysfunctional church experience, there were some glimmers of hope there. Um, often mum would read our bedtime stories straight out of the Bible. And King David, uh, the giant slayer, the man after God's own heart, he, he'd become my hero. And as a six-year-old, I made my first commitment to Jesus. Now, I'm really grateful for mum's influence on my faith um, early on in life. But the reality is, being such an insecure kid, um, my commitment to Jesus was shaky at best. Despite this shakiness, though, um, at a young age, I I experienced something of Jesus that um, really never left me, no matter how much I rebelled. And I had a taste of um, what it was like to know God as Abba, Daddy, that person that I, I, I long for so much. Um, like my escape essentially at the time was um, the outdoors, being active, wild, being adventurous, and I- even at times being violent. Um, the, the older kids in the neighbourhood, um, they would match up us younger kids for fights. Um, initially, I hated it. It was really just the older kids indirectly bullying us. But uh, after a little while, I came to like it. I, I even came to enjoy it, just that sense of being dangerous, of being powerful, of being scary. But that was until I saw where it, where it really led. Um, two guys I knew from the neighbourhood got into a fight out the front of Mum's place one day. And it went up and down the street. It was wild. And eventually, they came crashing through our front gate while we were watching and as I watched one of these guys pummel the other guy's head into our front doorstep, I, I was just really struck just with the reality of violence and where it led. Um, th- these guys were literally trying to kill each other and, and it scared me. Um, after that, the fighting, it, it wasn't the same and I would rarely be involved in one after that. And not long after that, um, I started high school. Um, I, I got really into basketball. It turned out I was pretty good. So from then till about the age of 17, that was um, a real source of um, validation for me, my performance on the basketball court. And by that time, though, um, basketball was well and truly eclipsed by music. Um, I'd started learning guitar around the age of 14, and I quickly became obsessed, um, both with guitar and just angsty, angry music. Um, And up until, I suppose, my early 20s, Music was supreme in my life. It was the ultimate escape um, alongside an unhealthy dose of binge drinking and experimenting with drugs. Um, By the time, well, in my teens, um, my my anger had gone from being explosive and directed at others um, to being passive and directed inwards. I was diagnosed with depression, soon medicated for that. By my late teens, I was suffering from insomnia then medicated for that. And by my early 20s, I was a mess. Um, I was without hope and I knew it. The ironic thing was, um, 
I knew where I could find hope. Um, I, I, I knew Jesus was the source of real hope. I knew he was the answer. I knew he could save me. But I, I, I wanted to belong so much. I, I chose to seek the acceptance of others over the acceptance of God. I, I was so insecure. I, I, I pretended. I, I did what I thought I needed to do to be accepted by others. The only problem is if you pretend to be something for long enough, you start to become it. Redemption. Now, by 22, my lack of hope had become acute and I really didn't like the person I was becoming. That's when God spoke into my brokenness. Um, one day I opened up a Bible, which I would do very casually from time to time, and these words from the prophet Joel hit me. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, <laughs> with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. <laughs> For the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. I knew God was speaking to me. I knew all the time that I stopped pretending to let Jesus save me. Early on, just in my second go at church, um, I'd often be reduced to tears in worship. I had so much just bottled up inside of me that I just needed to get off my chest. And not long into my church experience, the anger, it started to come up again. I'd said yes to Jesus, but I was still having a hard time saying yes to Christians. So <laughs> the next 18 months, it was just a real process of me, um, you know, coming alive to God learning to let go of my anger, to let others in. Now, that wasn't an easy process, and in a lot of ways, it's still going. But in that season, I discovered a freedom that I'd never known, the freedom of being freely and fully accepted as I am in, in my brokenness, in my weakness, and with my past. Like, no longer did my rejection have the ultimate say about who I was. Jesus had come for me. He'd been rejected in my place. He paid the price for my rebellion, for my rejection of God, for life himself. He died that I might live, that I might have God's acceptance. I began to experience that reality. I tasted as a boy, Abba, Daddy, I was a son of God. restoration. Now, it's been more than a decade since I said yes to Jesus, and I'm not going to lie to you, I'm far from perfect. But I can honestly say to you, I have hope, hope for the future. And since saying yes to Jesus, I've experienced the deepest, most satisfying relationships of my life. The best friends I've ever had, they've been Christians. Who'd have guessed it? <sighs> just responding to God's pursuit of me. Not only did it open me up to, um, you know, knowing him, it, it opened me up to being known by others, to not have to hide, to not have to pretend, even being okay with vulnerable, knowing that he's got my back. Just 
having the freedom to become the person he always intended me to be, bearer of Christ, bright shining light. Even in my weakness, he's not ashamed to call me his. And even the darkness of my brokenness isn't enough to stop his light shining through me. Thanks, guys. Robin, thank you so much for being so vulnerable with us. It's such a powerful story of how God has saved you and made you his own, and we'd love to pray for you now, brother. Father, we thank you that you know where Robin has come from. You know the depths of his pain, of his sin, of his brokenness, all the ways he's been wounded by his parents, by circumstances, by himself. And Father, we we give you the praise that while others might have rejected Robin, that you didn't, that you pursued him, that you sent your son Jesus to die for him, to take his, his shame, his pain, his sin, to die so that Robin might live. And we just re- rejoice that your Holy Spirit has given him new life, uh, that he has a glorious new future ahead of him where there will be no more tears, where there will be no more death. And Father, we ask that you would continue your work in his life, continuing to make him the man you created him to be. Father, we thank you for how much of a blessing he is to our community here and those within his GC. Thank you for his beautiful family. And we ask that you would bless him uh, as a man of God, that um, he would more and more... uh, be shaped by your story, that he would more and more uh, see the depths of your love for him, that he would more and more be shaped in your image and that you would use him in his workplace and here and in his community and in his family to uh, shine your light. Uh, And Father, just thank you so much that you delight to use us in our weakness and that our weakness shows your power Father, we ask that your power might be displayed in Robin uh, for all the rest of his days. In Jesus' name, amen.